Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, he finally arrived at his destination, and he had to do something that in, in the old days people often had to do. They showed up, and then they had to find someone and ask, where am I? Where have I arrived? People, when they traveled, used to have that experience all the time. You might imagine a, a traveler crossing a, a trek of desert, arriving at an oasis, and having to stumble up to the, the, the person, the first person that they see, and, and inquire about where their destination was. That, of course, is something that uh, we don't have to contend with any longer. Thanks to the miracles of GPS, we not only always know where we're going, we know how long it's going to take to get there, and when we arrive, a helpful voice tells us we have reached our destination. It removes so much ambiguity from the experience of arrival. In Columbus's case, of course, it was even worse than most people experience because he was guilty not just of arriving and not knowing where he was, but arriving and thinking he was somewhere and being completely wrong about it. He thought he had arrived at his destination, and he hadn't, and ironically died believing he had reached his destination. If only he'd gone a little bit farther, he would have found what he was looking for. I love GPS. I love knowing where I'm going. I love knowing when I'm going to get there. But I sometimes wish that we didn't have that crutch. I wish that we still had the experience of arriving and not knowing where we've arrived. Because the reality is, um, spiritually, existentially, uh, we don't know where we're going. We often don't realize when we've arrived. And when we have arrived, we don't know where it is that we are. And in the worst cases, we've arrived and we think we're one place and we're really somewhere else entirely. We're so confused in our spirit, so confused in our lives that our ability to know our location physically, I think, can be a misleading reassurance about how we actually live our lives. This morning, though, we have arrived. We've reached our destination in the book of Hebrews. We've reached our destination. Not only are we there, but the book of Hebrews is actually going to give us that helpful, you have now reached your destination, warning. The question is, where have we arrived? We've been following a trail all through the book of Hebrews, and that trail has had to do with the Old Covenant and the New. That trail, that path that we've been traveling, has to do with whether or not the new promises that we have in Christ are better than what went before. And now we're at the end of the journey. We've reached our destination. We've reached the foot of the mountain. But the question is, which mountain have we arrived at? What destination are we actually at? And that's the question that our text is going to answer. We're going to find out where we are and also where we're not. We're going to find out that it's better to be where we are, even though being where we are comes with a lot more responsibility. And we're also going to find out, now that we're here, what we're supposed to do. And more importantly, why we're supposed to do it. So let's take a look at Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. We'll read from verse 18, all the way to the the end of the chapter. For you have not come to what may be touched, 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We've reached our destination. We find ourselves at the foot of the mountain, but the mountain that we've arrived at is not Mount Sinai. It is Mount Zion. And the scene is entirely different. We've come not to fearful Sinai, but to joyful Zion. It's interesting when the author of Hebrews really wants to make his case, when he really wants to emphasize uh, that he's bringing together all the themes that he's been talking about. He does it with poetry. We've seen this before, but, but when his argument reaches its, its highest level, this isn't the point where he becomes most sort of adamant in his logic. It's where he becomes the most beautiful in his expressions. And so the language that we have here is poetry, and it's rich in images, so that as you read this text, you see a scene being painted in your mind. And the first scene that we see is the scene at Zion we see essentially the, the scene that is recorded for us in the Old Testament in Exodus 19 and in Deuteronomy 4, but now we're seeing it through a slightly different lens. It is really apropos to talk about it as, as seeing it through a lens because there is something almost cinematic about the arrangement of the images. As you read this passage, you're getting pictures, but you're also getting sounds. Like a moment is being... Uh, presented to us, or a series of moments, a series of snapshots from, from the giving of the law at Sinai. And what's removed from that is, is the plot. Or you're not being told what happened at Sinai, you're being given a sense of how it felt to be at the foot of that mountain when God revealed himself through Moses in his law. And the way it felt was pretty intimidating. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
fear. It's amazing to be shown this scene where the Ten Commandments are being delivered on this holy mountain, and for the predominant emotion that's being captured here is the fearfulness of it all. We approach the mountain, but we can go no further. We can't climb up the mountain because even an animal, if it were to stray under the mountain, must be destroyed. Only Moses can go up. Only Moses can go in the presence of God and receive this revelation. And when he comes down, he will have a glory about him, a glow about him that will make us want him to shield his face from us. An unbearable glory. An unbearable glory, just as the command that was spoken was unendurable to the people who heard it. The voice that they heard was a voice they wanted to hear no more. When we think about a revelation from God, we think about hearing from God, the thing you don't expect is that you would hear the voice of God and you would say, please, no more. Please stop revealing yourself to me. And yet this is the way that we're being shown the scene. And it emphasizes something. It emphasizes inaccessibility. Now, this is a historical insight. If you had been at Sinai historically, you would have been present at a moment of unparalleled accessibility of the God who made the world. This is the creator of the world who is so much higher than us. His ways are incomprehensible to us that to have any knowledge of him, it's necessary for him to come down to reveal himself to us. So what happened at Sinai was wonderful. What happened at Sinai was unprecedented, and yet it was tinged with awe. It was tinged with fear because of the holiness of the God who was revealing himself. And now, looking back on Sinai, it looks differently than it did before because there is a better mountain. There is a better place to arrive than to arrive at Sinai, and that's Zion. When the description of Zion is given, it's entirely different right, in the nature of its images, but also in, in the emotion that this scene captures. The description is structured in a parallel way. So when Mount Sinai is described, the series of, of, of images, of snapshots we get, there's seven of them. There's the blazing fire, the darkness, the gloom, the tempest, the sound of the trumpet. There's the voice of command. And then there's the the words of Moses speaking at the end, concluding it all, where Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, says, I tremble with fear. And now we'll see seven things again, but seven things entirely different. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So when you come to Zion, you come not to a bare mountain in the wilderness. When you come to Zion, you come to a mountain that is crowned with a city. It is crowned with heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. That's the first thing. You see innumerable angels gathered there, but they're gathered, we're told, in a festal gathering. In other words, uh, they're gathered to celebrate. They're gathered together not in judgment. They're gathered together not sharpening their angelic swords so that they can go stand around Eden and keep all of us out. They're gathered together to feast. 
they're gathered together to celebrate. You encounter also the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, which is significant, right? Because the firstborn here are not uh, the people who happen to have been first in birth order, right? These are the heirs with Christ, the ones who have become the firstborn, the ones who become those who inherit all things that are due to the firstborn, all those who are enrolled in the book of life in heaven. We come to God Himself, the judge of all. We don't stop at the mountain knowing that He's up there, but inapproachable, we enter into the presence of the God who is the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those who've gone before us, those heroes of the faith that we looked at, who through their faithfulness, through their suffering, the Holy Spirit made perfect or whole or complete over time. And then finally to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant. We saw Moses before, and the word that Moses spoke was, I tremble with fear. But now we come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And there is a final word spoken here as well. The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember your Old Testament back in Genesis 4. The very first murder, Cain kills Abel. And when God confronts Cain about it, he says to him, your brother's blood is crying out. The blood of that first slain son cried out to God for retribution. And now, Jesus speaks. This is Moses spoke, now Jesus speaks. But Jesus speaks through His blood. And His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The mood for all of these snapshots, all of these scenes that were given, is so entirely different from Sinai that you realize that to arrive here at Zion is so much better than to have arrived at Sinai. Because the mood here is one of joy. It is one of joy. You haven't stopped at the foot of the mountain and able to go further. Instead, you've come into the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. You've come into the presence of the saints and of the angels. You've entered into the feast that is prepared. This is a good place to have arrived at the end of your journey. This is a good place to be. A place of joy. It's a scene that could have been plucked out of Revelation 4 and 5. That great throne room of God scene that we get at the beginning of the book of Revelation. We've now entered into the place of promise. Or rather, better, the place where promises are fulfilled. There's a significance to this geography, to these two mountains. right? Sinai on the one hand and Zion on the other. Because of course Sinai stands for something and Zion stands for something as well. Paul makes this clear in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, when he talks about uh, the two, uh, how to put it, the two uh, baby mamas of Abraham, right? Sarah and Hagar. This is Galatians 4, starting in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. In taking these two women, he interprets the story from the Old Testament allegorically and says this is the story of two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which also makes it the story of two mountains, uh, Sinai and Zion, which also makes it the story of two cities, Jerusalem and Jerusalem. Only one Jerusalem is the present Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem, and the other is spiritual Jerusalem, Jerusalem above as the author of Hebrews says. It's significant the way Paul in Galatians describes what it means to be a son of Jerusalem in the present day, of the old covenant, let's say. He says that's to be born into slavery. That's slavery. To be born into the old covenant is to be born into slavery. The law brings us under condemnation. The law, like a, a, a disciplinarian school teacher, shows us how far short we fall. And it becomes a kind of death, a kind of slavery. Like the law is good, it reflects the holiness of God, but what it does for us is it holds a standard before us that is impossible to live up to. A kind of slavery, a kind of bondage. Whereas Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, this is freedom. To be in Christ is to be free to be free of that captivity. To be free of that condemnation for having fallen short. To be able to walk away from that condemnation. Not have it touch you. That's real freedom. To be in Zion is to be free. Now again, all of the things revealed in the Old Covenant were good in their day. The author of Hebrews has already said it's not that what God gave during those days was bad. It's just that what he's given now is so much better that in comparison, nothing can compare. Nothing can compare. Even things that were good before now seem bad in comparison. Even what must have seemed like liberation then, we can now look back and recognize as a kind of captivity. And for the original audience of this book, people who were wavering, People who are wondering whether these new promises really were better than the old. People who might even have been turning back to the old. What they're being shown here is what you would be returning to is slavery that you were freed from. To return to the law is to return to condemnation. It's to go back into the slavery that Christ has liberated you from. It's to go back into the fear when you're meant to be living in joy. It's better to be where we are, in other words. It's better to be where we are. It's better to be in Christ than anything that has gone before. The promises of Christ are good, they're true, they're reliable, and they're freeing. But they do come with more responsibility. They do come with greater responsibility. The author of Hebrews, as he continues, says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. If you can remember all the way back to Hebrews chapter 2, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2, very similar line of logic is employed. The idea is, if we look back at the old covenant, 
and we see the penalties attached to disobedience in the Old Covenant, considering how much better the New Covenant is, then surely rejecting it would be worse than rejecting what went before. Like if rejecting the Old Covenant had a penalty attached to it, penalty of condemnation of death, then rejecting the New, rejecting Christ, how much worse would that be? God has revealed Himself through Scripture progressively. Right? If you, as you read the Bible, you realize that people early on, they didn't know as much about God as those who came later. Which is ironic, because we tend to think that the more reliable knowledge would be the, the earlier knowledge. Right? The people who lived closest to the times of, of, let's say, the Garden of Eden. Or the people who lived closest to the times where God came down at Sinai and gave the law. Or even the people who live closest to the life of Christ. Right? Those people would be the ones who know the most because they had that first-hand experience. And yet God, over the course of time, has shown that he's revealing himself more and more over time. Like we actually know more about him than Moses did, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about. We know more over time, but with that greater knowledge comes more responsibility because that knowledge isn't just knowledge, it's access. What it meant for God to reveal himself progressively is that God became not just increasingly known, but also increasingly accessible. His ways became more understandable to us. We came to understand more of what he was doing, more of who he was, what his character was, that sort of thing. And as he revealed himself more plainly, it becomes more difficult to say, I had no idea. How could I possibly have known? And so that's the idea. But as God has revealed himself in Christ, it leaves all of us without excuse. As as Paul would say in Romans 1, this is a revelation, a self-revelation of God that uh, we ought to heed because we have no excuse for rejecting him. Something's coming. There is an event in the future that is coming, and so it's important, it is important to receive him and not to reject him. And the event that's coming is a kind of judgment, a kind of shaking, the author of Hebrews describes it as. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. He's referring to the past, to Mount Sinai. You go back and and you look at the description, the voice that was heard was a voice that shook the earth. But now, he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now here, the author of Hebrews is going back to one of the minor prophets, Haggai. He's taking a prophecy that Haggai records. This is in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. And he's reminding us, this is at the tail end of the Old Testament, he's reminding us of these words that happened at at the very end of what would have been Scripture at this time. There was a a promise that was given. Like, I shook the earth back then, but I'm going to shake earth and heaven in days to come. That phrase, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So this shaking, this kind of earthquake, is a judgment. It's going to come and it's going to shake things, and it's going to shake away everything that can be shaken away. Everything that can be uh, destroyed, dislodged, and cleared away will be. But... If you go back and look at the prophecy and you read the whole thing, this is not just an anticipation of 
judgment, it's also an anticipation of restoration. Listen to the original prophecy of Haggai. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the idea that there is an earthquake coming um, can be terrifying. But, but the judgment that is coming is also a restoration of the good. It's a building up of the good. The glory of this house, the glory of this Zion will be greater than it was before as a result. I think the problem for us, and when I say us, I don't mean uh, just like uh, humans in general, so that we can say, well, the problem for humans in general, i.e. them, is this. I mean, the problem with us, all of us, um, look, we don't like to hear about judgment coming. If you're in Christ and you know that you will not face that ultimate judgment, the condemnation of sin, uh, maybe there's a sense in which you can say, well, that doesn't scare me because uh, I won't have to face it ultimately. But honestly, that's not how I feel. When I hear about judgment to come, I (laughs) want to stop hearing about it. And certainly when I get to the part in the text where you have to talk about it, I don't want to talk about it. I only talk about it because it's there and you kind of have to talk about what's, what's there. There's a reason we fear judgment, whether we're in Christ or not, because the things that are shaken by it things we care about, things we're invested in. It's easy to say that, that uh, you know, the fire is going to come and it's going to burn up all of the stuff that's the wood, hay, and the stubble, and only the, the, the good stuff will be left. But then I worry, like, well, what does that mean? What will I have that's left? Because what do I have that's not wood, hay, and stubble? A lot of that wood, hay, and stubble I care deeply about. Because, like you, I'm heavily invested in shakable kingdoms things that matter a lot to me, things that I've put a lot of effort into trying to build up, trying to shore up, trying to make as as great as I can make them. But I know they're shakable. I know they're not going to stand in in a divine earthquake. And it frightens me. And it, it, it saddens me. We assume there's a stability to the world that we're building. There's a stability to the lives that we're living that is, frankly, an illusion. And it takes an earthquake sometimes to remind us just how much of an illusion that is. I never understood this when I was reading uh, literature, what a big deal this was. But if you've ever had to read uh, like Enlightenment literature, you might be familiar with Voltaire's uh, work Candide, uh, where he's testing this, this... ludicrous in his eyes proposition that that everything is for the good and the best of all possible worlds. Uh, The event that refutes that idea for him is an earthquake. In 1755, there was this famous Lisbon earthquake. And I remember in class having to learn about this, and it just seems so random to me that your, your sort of philosophy would be shaped by an earthquake that happened in the mid 18th century. But it was a big deal. Uh, it was a huge earthquake in the city of Lisbon, which is like the capital of Portugal, right on the 
the water and uh, like earthquakes do, it then created a tsunami whose effects were felt throughout the, the Atlantic. Uh, it you know, knocked the city down, destroyed the city, and then created waves that came back in and flooded the city. And I think 30,000, 40,000 people were killed in this sudden destruction of this modern, enlightened European city. This, this global power, this colonial power, suddenly laid waste in half an hour. And that event shook the Enlightenment world and went on to shape the way people thought about the world. Because they had imagined that the world was a sort of, uh, this is anachronistic, but a Newtonian clockwork mechanism. Everything worked together. That there were these sort of overarching schemes of perfection and that sort of thing. And it could all be accessed by reason. And then something as unreasonable as an earthquake destroys all of these certainties. And this horror that is unleashed on the civilized world suddenly gives everyone pause. You've seen the same effect, right? Constantly we have hurricanes, we have tsunamis, we have uh, events like this that, that the insurance adjusters call acts of God that come in and destroy, and they don't just destroy what we've built, they don't just destroy people, they destroy confidence, assurance, kingdoms that we've invested so much in. There's this moment in, uh, in uh, Venezuelan history, the Venezuelan War of Independence, the first War of Independence, not the second one, for those of you who are wondering. Uh, yeah. Where the Venezuelans have thrown off the colonial power. They've beaten back Spain, and they've established their independent republic, and everything is going well for them. The future looks optimistic, and then the city of Caracas is destroyed by an earthquake. And the earthquake is really selective. The earthquake destroys the rebel territories, the people who fought for their independence, and the royalists are left basically untouched, which prompted the Archbishop of Caracas to say that this was a terrifying but well-deserved earthquake because he was a royalist. And any time, like, the spiritual leader of your city is looking over the, the ruins of your city and your cathedral saying, well, this was terrifying but well-deserved, that's got to be a blow. And as a result... They lost that independence. The Spanish were able to reassert their authority because an act of God had reversed all of their gains. We insure ourselves against such things, but you can't. The fact is, the unshakable kingdom of Christ is the only thing that we can be assured of. That all of our shakable kingdoms, no matter how good they are, no matter how uh, well-intentioned they are, those things will pass away. And what's left is this kingdom of Christ. This unshakable kingdom that we have entered into. This is what will remain. This is what will endure. What we have sacrificed for this is what actually matters. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I feel like one of those disciples on the Emmaus Road, who after they heard the words of Jesus and they reflected on them, they looked back and they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke? And I read those words, and especially coming at the end of that, that uh, chapter, our God is a consuming fire. I feel like my heart is burning within me. Yes. God is a consuming fire. 
That's a quotation. When the author of Hebrews speaks those words, he's not speaking his own words. He's speaking the words of that fearful guy, Moses, that we heard from earlier. It was Moses who said these words in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where that Sinai scene is taken from. He says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And there's something important to realize about that, because at the very end of this passage, where we've seen this contrast between Sinai on the one hand and Zion on the other, we're being reminded of something, that the God of Sinai is the God of Zion. The way he's revealed himself has changed, but he has not changed. He remains who he was. He didn't like start off angry and become loving. He was always loving and always holy at the same time. It is the same God, this consuming fire, who revealed himself in the burning bush and reveals himself here in this all-consuming fire. God hasn't changed, only our access to him has. And so, having arrived at Zion, the question is, what do you do? What should you do? What, what are the action steps? We're here. We've made the journey. We're here at Zion. So, how should we live now? And what we're told to do, that in gratitude, we must worship and reverence and awe. Worship, basically. That's the action step. You should feel gratitude, and you should worship. And if you're like me, those action steps feel like no action at all. Right? What we want to be told is what to do, like what to go out into the world and to do. What sort of things should we be accomplishing now? We've inherited this unshakable kingdom. Now what? Should we uh, be going to all the shakable kingdoms and helping to shake them down? Like, should we be going out and doing this, that, and the other? What should we be doing in our lives, in our world, that sort of thing? What is the agenda? What is the plan? And now we're told, oh, you should feel gratitude and you should worship. It's like, well, okay, so we should do nothing, basically? Right? Sometimes you feel that way with prayer, you know, that, that what can I do for you? And you say, oh, you could pray for me. Oh, so nothing, basically. Nothing. Because we think that what prayer is is nothing, that it does nothing. That's not how God sees, and that's not how God sees worship. If, if to be told to worship and reverence and awe sounds to you like you've been told to just cool your heels in Zion, then you don't understand what God means by the word. Because to worship him in reverence and awe is such an all-encompassing and all-demanding thing that you could not possibly do it. You cannot do it. You cannot worship him as he wants to be worshipped. You don't have it in you. You don't have the strength. You don't have the well of reserve the ability to worship him because he expects you to do something more than show up on Sunday morning for an hour or an hour and a half. He wants more from you than that, than, than observance. The kind of worship that he wants is all-encompassing. It, it's what we mean when we say that, that we do everything as unto the Lord. In other words, Everything that you do, you do as if it were worship. You do it as a form of worship. We talked earlier about the idea that we give tithes and offerings as a form of worship. You're thinking, huh, I thought it was a form of like extortion. No, it's a form of worship, like everything else that we do. It's meant to show us how to, like, what God, God teaches us how to use our money as an example of how to use our lives. Let's put it that way. 
He teaches us how to use our money as an example of how to do our work. Your job is a place to worship. The work that you do should be done as worship, should be done as unto the Lord. Your family should be raised. Your relationship should be nurtured as unto the Lord. It's a form of worship in reverence and awe. Work in reverence and awe. Love in reverence and awe. Filled with gratitude for what you've been given. If that sounds like you've been asked to do nothing, you're just not hearing what's being said. Because what you're being asked to do is everything. Like all of the action steps, all of the bullet points have been taken by God and put all together and say, yes, I want it all. All of it. Haggai says, all of the silver is mine. All of the gold is mine. All of the hours are mine. All of the work is mine. All of the love is mine. When we're told to worship Him in reverence and awe, we're told really to give ourselves up to Him in every respect. To do all of our action, all of our labor as unto the Lord. Which means like there's nothing in your life that shouldn't be filled with reverence and awe. There's nothing in your life that you shouldn't do out of a sense of gratitude. All of life as worship. God isn't demanding nothing. He's demanding everything. He is an all-demanding God. He is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. He wants it all. That's it. There's one thing we didn't talk about in this passage that we should. It's all the voices. We talked about the, the pictures that it puts in your mind. But what I love about the passage is it's not just a series of images. It's not just iconic, but it's auditory. There's so many voices speaking in this passage. So many sounds to be heard. A kind of conversation. Sometimes a a kind of shouty conversation. There is that voice of command that is is issuing that, that unendurable law to the people at Sinai. There's the voice of fear from the lips of Moses, who's speaking the despair of the sinner in the presence of a holy God. There is the voice of judgment quoted from the prophet Haggai. The voice of of judgment to come. A God whose voice will shake heaven and earth, will shake down all of the shoddy structures that we've put up. There's also that voice of Abel the voice of Abel's blood crying for retribution. The interesting thing about that, bl- that blood, the voice of that blood being cited here, is how it situates us. In terms of, like, what is it that Abel's blood cries out for? Right? Abel's blood cries out to God for retribution, right? for justice against Cain, the murderer. The voice of the innocent also cries out against us. Cries out for justice, for retribution against our sin. In the story of Cain and Abel, if you've been identifying with Abel, you haven't been reading it correctly. And the reason why, there's, there's hope in that story, right? That Cain isn't just destroyed, but he's actually shown mercy by God and protected by God is that we serve a God who protects wrongdoers. Which is good, because that's what we are. The voice of Abel cries out, 
power for retribution, but the voice of the blood of Jesus cries out a better word. The blood of Christ speaks a better word. And in all of those voices that you hear, that cacophony of voices, there's just one voice that you need to hear above them all. The still small voice, the blood of Christ speaking the better word. The, the, the final word will not be judgment. The final word will not be retribution. The final word will not be fear. The final word will be joy. Because the final word belongs to Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.